0: This being the first Sunday in our season of Lent brings us to traditional reading of one of the Gospels this morning. It is from Luke's Gospel of Jesus' temptation in the wilderness. As familiar as this reading may be to most of us, may God open up to us a new understanding of this word. Jesus has been baptized by John in the river and come up out of the waters. It is his peak moment, hearing God's voice proclaim him as his son in whom he is well pleased. And then it says, immediately, Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the wilderness, where for 40 days he was tempted by the devil. He ate nothing at all during those days, and when they were over, he was famished. The devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, or since you are the Son of God, command this stone to become a loaf of bread. And Jesus answered him, It is written, One does not live by bread alone. Then the devil led him up and showed him in an instant all the kingdoms of the world. And the devil said to him, To you I will give you their glory and all this authority, for it has been given over to me. That's a lie. And I give it to anyone I please. If you then will worship me, it will all be yours. Jesus answered him, It is written, Worship the Lord your God and serve only him. Then the devil took him to Jerusalem and placed him on the pinnacle of the temple, saying to him, since you are the Son of God, throw yourself down from here. For it is written, He will com- even the devil uses scripture, by the way. For it is written, he will command his angels concerning you to protect you, and on their hands they will bear you up so that you will not dash your foot against a stone. And Jesus answered him, It is said, Do not put the Lord your God to the test. When the devil had finished every test, he departed from him until an opportune time. This is the word of the Lord. If you look up Lent in your Bible concordance, you will not find it there, for there was no such thing as Lent in biblical times. The custom of spending 40 days in Prayer and self denial did not come about until the initial rush of Christian adrenaline had been spent and believers had settled into a ho-hum existence with Christ. When Jesus didn't come soon after he said he would or thought they, they thought he would, they lowered their expectations and settled. They hung wooden crosses on their walls and doors and went about their routines with little but memory and tradition to stand on for their faith. Little by little, Christians became accustomed to the comforts of the everyday routine. Pews were padded so soft so that the experience of the struggles of life may be softened. Flannel sheets of sentimentality were handed over to cover us with in worship. Rich and hearty meals of institutional church programming and, and life were served on platters full and brimming over with good preaching, hopefully, and a few missions offered up as dessert. While making Christians feel safe and cared for, they no longer distinguished themselves by their bold love for one another ...or their fierce need to forgive. They did not get arrested for championing the poor. They blended in and avoided extremes, deciding to be nice and holy. And God moaned out loud. So, someone deciding it was time to call Christians back to their senses... ...came up with this idea of Lent... It means literally spring, but the practice of Lent calls us to spend 40 days in a wilderness of some sort, a desert of self-denial or a place where one feels lost or displaced, uncertain and out of control, to get in touch with that desert part of ourselves that is arid or hungry or craving something we're not even sure of, or homesick for some place we're not sure of, and all we know we want to do is to get back there. Then is the time we spend 40 days in the wilderness, where the wild things are, which happens to be one of my favorite books with my children. It's only 40 days, just six weeks out of a full year, not including Sundays, by the way, you don't have to, practice your Lenten discipline on Sunday. All of that said, it's not really that long. It's only about seventh or an eighth of the year. When we say we are giving something up for Lent, maybe what it is we are giving up is a symbolic something of uh, of the illusion that we are in charge and fully possessed and certain and in control and the master of our own ship. Maybe that's What we're called to give up. For Lent is the season where we start to get in touch again with our humanity. And in so doing, we become aware of God's huge divinity. The Bible gives us good warrant for this. Before the people of Israel were shown the promised land, right after they were liberated from Egypt, a high point... God's hand through Moses leads them through the wilderness for 40 years. You know, the joke, why did the people wander around in the wilderness for 40 years because Moses, being a man, refused to ask directions? But actually, the story in Exodus makes it clear that they could have taken a shorter route, in fact, two or three shorter routes, but instead, God led them through the long and hard way, which ended up being... The way of regeneration, new birth, community, discipline, and dependence on God for everything. In short, for the Israelites, the wilderness experience was where and how they were given their true identity. They found themselves in it. Or take Jesus' story this morning. Right after he was baptized by John in the Jordan and hearing the good news that he was God's son, the beloved, and whom God is well pleased, the Spirit takes him and leads him into the wilderness for 40 days of wrestling with himself and the temptation to be something other than what he was called to be. That was the wrestling match, whether to be Jesus the Christ or the temptation to be something other than he was called to be. And the Bible makes it clear that this is somehow the will of God. The devil is no dummy. He always knows the soft part of us to tempt, to try to get us to forget who we are and whose we are. And the three temptations that the devil tempted Jesus with are no exception. Turn stones into bread which could have not only fed Jesus, but the whole world. There were plenty of stones for that. What's wrong with that? Come ruler over all the kingdoms of the world. did not that what we pray for in the Lord's Prayer? Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is. And what's wrong with that? Jesus could have ruled over all the religions when he was taken up to the Temple Mountain and jumped off to have all the angels grab him, and therefore no one would ever question who he was again. Everyone would fall in lockstep, and every knee would bow, and every tongue would confess, as our Bible points toward. What's wrong with that? We'd all be assured of our salvation. No more religious wars, persecutions. We'd all be on the same page, except for two things. There would be no love in it, and there would be no freedom in it. All three temptations justified by alleviating suffering and hardship, it was a hard test. It was the cosmic Faustian bargain with good intentions all over it, and Jesus was indeed tempted greatly by them. Each day, more and more, as he grew famished, alone, rationalizing like the rest of us why it would make good sense to give in to it, like I do, having given up sweets for Lent, when I walk by a jar of M&M peanuts, every rationalization in the book runs through my head. That is a minute temptation. There is no virtue in that. But the virtue for Jesus is cosmic. He doesn't give in to it. And that's the point. In standing standing down the temptations, he was now ready to spring into his own ministry as God's son. It was... Him coming to himself. You see, there's a biblical theme here. Before Israel could become the chosen people of God, before Jesus could begin the journey toward the cross and the ultimate redemption of his crucifixion, they had to undergo their own wilderness wandering for 40 days or 40 years or however long it took for them to understand who they were called to be and who God already was being. While it may be easy for us to understand the metaphorical and symbolic nature of wilderness and desert, think about the desert in the times of the Bible. We drive through Jacksonville, we can't cross, go two miles without crossing a bridge and seeing water. But in the Bible, the land was a dry and barren and forsaken place, fierce, cosmic in size. It was giant. It was it was rocky and dusty and full of snakes and scorpions, scorching days and frigid nights, demons hid in every crevice and shadow, and death was ever present. That barren landscape, unfamiliar to us, at least physically, was always with the people of Israel, always out there on the edges surrounding civilization a yawning expanse of scary barrenness no one wanted to go in or through if they could help it. Even though we do not have a physical sense of that in our civilized, water-laden Jacksonville, I suspect we know all too well internally that spiritual, personal, and emotional wilderness in our inner selves that sometimes desolate place of hardship or grief or loss or struggle or hunger or fear or just being displaced. That place of seeming abandonment or throbbing aloneness, we've all got that. And no one wants to go there, that wilderness, if they don't have to. But sooner or later in life, Whether it's God or not, it will shove us out there or in there whether we want to go or not. And sooner or later, we will all come to know about the landscape of the wilderness in our own souls. So the season of Lent gives us a chance to practice spending time wandering in the wilderness so that when the time comes that we really are in it, we will not give in to every temptation to fix it, or every temptation that offers us a way out of it immediately. Having noticed wilderness survival just a little bit in our lives, we might be able to notice it more cosmically in other people's lives, so it also brings compassion. It's the way we begin our spiritual walk in Lent. We might just find the strength and encouragement to face and endure the real wilderness landscape, and the opportunity arises. And what we will find there is not only a struggle, but also the very place where our spiritual formation takes on a whole new presence. It's a practice, a rite of passage, and the passage it leads us to is a new awareness of our own ego-driven selves who want to be the center of things versus the ginormous size and mystery of God who is already the center of things, whether we think God is or not. It's about our egos in the end, or call it pride, or whatever you want to call it. It's about our wanting to be like God. And why is it that so right after we think we are there that we found it or we have it or that we grasp some of the answers to life's impossible questions or we perched yourself ourselves in the recliner of unmovable faith, then the meteor hits. Boom, the earth opens up and we're in free fall and life throws us a curve we didn't expect. We have no idea what to do next. And the next thing you know, you too, we are out there in the edges of the wilderness, lost and wondering where God is. Barbara Brown Taylor reminds us, popular religion focuses so hard on spiritual success that most of us do not know the first thing about the spiritual fruits of failure. When we fall ill or lose our jobs, wreck our marriages, or alienate our children or our parents, most of us are left alone to pick up the pieces. Even those of us who are ministered to by brave friends can find it hard to shake the shame of getting lost in our lives, and yet if someone asked us to pinpoint the times in our lives that changed us for the better, a lot of those times would be wilderness times. For me, I can remember several years, two or three, after my first wife Nancy died, having just such a wilderness experience was not my first and hasn't been the last. But in this case, I was on retreat with six other ministers at Amelia Island with a spiritual director and we were riding high after two days of prayer and spiritual direction. I was on cloud nine. Until the third day in the morning when we began to do the hard work of getting in touch with that desert, that arid place in us. After the session I went for a walk on the beach alone and as I walked I found myself becoming more and more enraged. I was angry at God. Soon I was raising my fist and screaming insults and calling God names. No one was around, thank goodness, or they would have thought I was a madman. Underneath all that anger, of course, was fear, but I didn't know that now. Mostly I felt put upon by the divine regulator and manager of things who stood by and did nothing when I needed him most. The fact was that I was in the wilderness and the struggle I was having was a spiritual one. And it was the same struggle that Job had. Why? Why? After all those sermons I had preached, saying, never ask why, for there is no answer. The answer we only can have is what next. There I am, walking down the beach, stumbling down the beach, screaming at God with fist raised, asking why. After about 40 minutes of this, can take it any way you want it. There were dark clouds racing by, the sound of the waves crashing, seagulls squawking overhead. I started screaming even louder. It was nothing but guttural lament, grief hurled up at God. And the more I yelled, the less it seemed God cared. For all I got was silence. Silence. In that moment, it felt like God was turning an indifferent ear to my lament. But then it hit me. Near exhaustion and struggling in that wilderness, on the sands of that beach, it struck me. I see, I see. I was blind, and now I see. Here I am, completely out of control, afraid tested, tempted, squirming, and mad at God because I was under threat. Now I see it's that wilderness thing. Maybe I'm right where I need to be. It occurred to me that God, like a parent whose five-year-old child screams at him, I hate you, I hate you, I wish you were dead, maybe that God is like that. Taking all of that anger on himself, as Jesus did that day when he was crucified and all the people screamed at him because he was not the kind of son of God that they wanted him to be either. God was there, of course, silently taking it on himself, for that's what love does. Just as Jesus showed us when he refused to claim the power of God to fix the world, but chose instead the love of God to heal it through his own suffering. And in that choice, he left us free to grow and to learn and to live and to struggle in our own wilderness time as we continue becoming children of God. It knocked me to my knees. It humbled me. This terrible awareness, yet it was full of profound grace. You see, the wilderness is the place where two things happen. Either you give in to the temptation of believing that you are the center of the universe, or you come to see how something infinitely more loving and cosmically more life-giving is at the center The wilderness reminds us of our place in the larger scheme of things. It brings us to lower our heads in humility and then to raise our heads up in awe and wonder and gratitude. If you are now in the wilderness or ever have been, do not despair. Nothing is born that does not first come out of darkness. The wilderness, as the Bible teaches, is the place where we discover who we are and whose we are. The risky landscape where love and faith are all we have to protect us and where we learn that God is God and we are not. I ran across a prayer Anita say for me. um Uh, She gave me last week. It just happened to fit perfectly for this sermon. It's a prayer, as old as this analogy is, it's a prayer from George Washington, the prayer he prayed at Valley Forge. We've probably seen that wonderful painting of Washington on the ground on his knee with his hands lifted up in prayer and his great horse behind him. That experience apparently was one of wilderness too, frozen deprivation, uh, desolation, 2,500 soldiers died of hunger and disease during that period. Most of the horses and livestock were uh, diseased or dying. And you would have thought that Washington's prayer would have been a prayer of petition for God to save him and his men and to give them the strength to go and defeat uh, the British. Maybe he did. But the prayer that has survived is this prayer it's the one called the Valley Forge Prayer. He says, Almighty God, Father of all men, not just us, to thee we raise thankful hearts of deliverance from the forces of evil. Deliver us, we pray, from the greater danger of ourselves. Have mercy upon us and forgive us for our part in the present desolation of the world. Awake us each time to sense our responsibility in saving the world from ruin Open our minds and eyes and hearts to the desperate plight of millions. Arouse us from indifference into action. Let none of us fail to give his utmost in sympathy, understanding, thought, and effort. Fulfill in us and through us thy glorious intention that thy peace, thy love, and thy justice may enter into the regeneration of the world. Only someone who has spent time in the wilderness could pray such a prayer as that. Only someone who has come to see the wilderness as the place where new things are born could pray such a prayer as that, for the regeneration of not just himself but all the world. So when you find yourself again in the wilderness, don't despair. While 40 days may seem like a long time, as I said, it's only a seventh or eighth of the year. It came to pass. It did not come to stay. All of life is not wilderness. But when it is, by the power of God, it can become the most generative landscape in our spiritual lives. If we are willing to persevere, have faith, and do not lose hope. Isaiah 35, in that wonderful passage, tells us, The land and its people are transformed. Let the desert and dry region be happy. Let the wilderness rejoice and bloom like a lily. Let it richly bloom. Let it rejoice and shout with delight. It is given the grandeur of Lebanon, the splendor of Carmel and Sharon. They will see the grandeur of the Lord, the splendor of our God. And so will it be in Christ's name. Let us bring forth the gifts of our lives and our labors.